morning, friends, comes from the book of Luke, chapter 14. Um, Your bulletin is lying to you. It is not verses 11 through 14. It's verses 7 through 14. And that is my fault, not admin Nick. He does his job very well. And sometimes I just type in the wrong things. (laughs) And so I would like to invite you to hear these words from Luke chapter 14 this morning. When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them this parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited you both may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. This is what is known today as World Communion Sunday. Um, There's actually a bunch of different things happening in the Christian world right now. For some people, this is um, the day that they're celebrating the blessing of the animals. Um, There's a couple churches doing that. I personally am excited after church today to get on Facebook because then I can look at all the cute pictures of all the dogs and cats and lizards and whatever else people brought to church today being blessed. Um, It's World Communion Sunday, and that is a Sunday in which people all across the world celebrate communion together. It is the 15th, 16th, 17th, something teenth Sunday after Pentecost, um, which is not as exciting as it sounds. It just means we're still in ordinary time, Um, and so the vestments are green. As I read the scripture this morning about food, it's so fitting as we're talking about World Communion Sunday today. And I have wanted to tell you about the way in which my family has had meals for most of my life. Um, Because as I've gotten older and gone other places, I realized that what was my norm is perhaps not the norm of other people. In fact, my family is still practicing a very old-timey rural tradition of eating Sunday supper. Um, For as long as I can remember, every single Sunday, my mom and I did the exact same thing, and that was get up, I would get dressed, she would tell me my clothing was not appropriate. Not really, but like usually I was trying to wear flip-flops to church and that was a big no in my family, Um, particularly because I did eventually get out of having to wear hose though and that was like really the accomplishment. Every Sunday we would get up, we would drive to church together, 
we would go to that little rural church that I grew up in. The church I grew up in is over 200 years old. And then we would drive up the road to my grandparents' farm, a house which is close to 100 years old and as of last year just got AC. And together we would all have lunch, or as we called it, supper, on the farm. I would walk up the two or three steps into my grandparents' house, which goes right into the kitchen, and it would just smell like food. And every single Sunday, no matter how I looked, my grandmother would greet me and tell me how pretty I am. And she would somehow always be home from church, changed into her normal Sunday clothes and out of her Sunday best, and be in the kitchen cooking when my mom and I were just getting in the door. My grandfather would come in and he would lounge in their sitting room, which doubles as the dining room with whoever else has shown up on that day because it was always a toss up and talk. And I would sneak in there to talk with them. And usually about the time I'd get settled in a conversation, my mom would notice I was sitting and remind me that I could be doing something helpful. <laughs> And so I would get up and go into the kitchen and everything would be waiting for me to put it on the table so that we could have supper and I would grab it. And usually at this point, all of the food, all of the casseroles, all of the desserts, all of the super yummy things were ready and waiting for me. And I would grab everything and put it on the table and everything would be done except for the biscuits. My entire life, my grandmother has made homemade biscuits by hand. And so I would walk into the pantry where my Nana would be making her biscuits. She never measures anything. She's got it down to a science. It's all a splash of that and a handful of this. She's done it a million times, and so she doesn't even have to think about it. Truly watching her make her biscuits is like watching an artist paint a picture. She's so good at it. She sifts the flour, she throws in some Crisco, she pours in the buttermilk. She makes homemade buttermilk biscuits, y'all. It's better than Biscuitville. <laughs> she rolls out the dough and effortlessly fresh biscuit dough is made. She puts them, she rolls them into the form of a biscuit. She pops them in the oven. And as soon as they come out hot, she pours them into the bread baskets. We put them on the table and we finally eat. As a young child, this was my favorite thing ever. I remember being so little, I could barely like look over the edge of the pantry and I'd stand on my tiptoes to watch her hands move through the wooden bread bowl that she would make her biscuits in. I loved watching her, I loved helping, I loved kneading and rolling out the biscuit dough and my grandmother was always endlessly patient with how annoying my cousins and I would be as we wanted to partake in this process. As a young child, she would welcome us to help her make biscuits. She would roll out the dough into these very tiny bite-sized pieces, um, elegantly called dodo. These little round balls of raw biscuit dough and she would give them to us to eat. And it was like the super fun treat that you only got on Sundays. And as gross as it sounds to just eat raw dough, um, I loved this as a kid. <laughs> 
it was great. On Sundays when we were running super late because my mom was talking to someone at church, if my grandmother had already gotten to the biscuits, when I would get there, I would run to the fridge and there'd be a little tiny plastic bowl of three or four rolled out pieces of dough. And I would get to eat my little dough treat and all my cousins would tell me how weird I was and I was living my best life. More than anything, I loved that when my grandmother let me take the lead on making the biscuits and I made them and they came out of the oven incredibly deformed and so hard you could literally knock someone out with them. When everyone else would refuse to touch my biscuits, my grandmother would always eat one and tell me how great it was. <laughs> My entire life I sat in the same seat on Sundays. We all, I wouldn't say we had assigned seats, but it was kind of like church where that's where you always sat. And if you sat somewhere else or someone sat in your seat, you had unholy thoughts about them. That's how I was at my grandparents' house. They have this large heavy wooden table that always has a tablecloth appropriate for the season on it. Three sides of it are lined with chairs, and one side, the side against the big bay window in this room, has a bench that my grandfather handmade. And that bench in the corner is my spot. It's a spot right next to my grandfather, and I loved this spot. Growing up, there was few things I disliked more than when somebody would sit in my spot, or when we'd have guests like my cousins from the far off land of Cary, North Carolina, <laughs> would come and the seating would shift and I'd get pushed out of my spot or my bench would get crowded and I couldn't sit next to my grandfather where the two of us would just have our own little conversation or he would mumble things to himself that were kind of rude about other people at the table. After he got hearing aids, I swear his favorite thing to do was pretend they weren't on, and then he would just eavesdrop. <laughs> and he would think he wasn't listening, and he was. Eventually, the table would get so crowded, like on Thanksgiving, my cousin and I would get completely pushed out of the dining room, and my family would set up a card table in my grandmother's sewing room. And that's where all the kids would have to sit. And to this day, if we have an event, all of my cousins and I try to fit around a card table in the sewing room. And somehow we do, but it's a whole dance to make it happen as we have all become adults. I loved my memories of meals at my family's. I love making biscuits with my grandmother. I love my spot. And as a child, it's the spot where I sulked and I cried when I wasn't allowed to leave the table because I hadn't finished my food or I'd done something rude. In this spot, I would sit close to my grandfather and talk to him. It's the spot where I'd always end up close to a pie, and as we'd get close to dessert, he would sort of edge it towards me, knowing what I wanted. It's in the spot on Sundays where I would chant the blessing in perfect unisons with my cousins as quickly as we could so we could get to the food. It's in this spot every week I would ask my grandfather if I could be excused so I could go play and inevitably he wouldn't hear me or he would just ignore me and I would sit there really, really like angsty until finally my grandmother would tell me you can be excused because you didn't leave the table if you weren't excused. 
That is still a rule. I do not leave that table until I've asked. <laughs> I dramatically sulk until my grandmother would tell me I could go and I'd run away to go try to play until my mom would come and find my cousins and I and then we had to do all of the dishes. Meals make up so much of our lives, friends. Meals are where we laugh and we cry and we learn about people around us. In the house where I grew up, in my parents' house, I usually didn't sit down for a meal with anybody. We ate on the go, we ate when we could. My mom and I sat in the living room watching TV and eating meals together. We were always scrambling. But at my grandparents' house, meals were a whole event. They were about the whole family being together. They were where we shared stories and antidotes and advice and arguments and everything going on in our lives. We had a certain way of doing things, of being around those with us, so much so that it just became so normal. Something we did every week without thinking about it. Truthfully, I've never thought about it until it got disrupted. When I was in college, I would drive home every single weekend to still go to church and have meals with my family. I was not a rager in college. <laughs> as I got to divinity school, I continued to do this as often as I could until I suddenly had to be somewhere else on Sunday mornings, which was both wonderful and really inconvenient. It was no longer my normal to get to go home and instead became a special treat. And as my grandfather passed and my grandmother has reached an age where she's no longer able to do all the things she wants to do and cook all the things she wants to cook, I realized how much I miss this. As now my Sunday afternoon meals are usually me hiding from literally anyone um, and door dashing food to my house so I don't have to leave. <laughs> Jesus is someone who loves food. He knows the value of spending time with people. He knows the value of listening, the value of talking and breaking bread with someone. He knows the importance of sharing a meal. He knows that it's an event, that it's a moment, an opportunity. And Jesus also makes us rethink our eating rituals, booting us out of the place we think is ours Jesus loves to make us uncomfortable, turning things we know upside down. He likes to make us rethink what the table should look like. And that can be hard when we've been sitting at a table in a certain place for a very long time. It can be hard when we love our ritual because it's cozy. In this story out of Luke, Jesus is at a meal with Pharisees and other religious leaders and some of his friends. And at this meal, there's a certain product, protocol. There's a way things are done. There's a ritual to be followed. There's unspoken rules. There's a social order. Just like there's an order of how things could go, should be done in most of the things we do in our lives, right? There's always a hierarchy and a social order. Maybe you have your own special corner at home and you get disrupted when your cousin sits in your spot and then you don't get pie first. Jesus lives in a time period when meals are really crucial. They have a certain social order. They do a certain thing. Meals can be very performative. They're a statement. If you can afford to throw a banquet, 
you are showing the entire world how well off you are, how important you are. Meals serve as a way to reinforce the divide between people struggling and the elite. In Jesus' time, meals are not a place where everyone is always welcome and can gather together in love and friendship. They're a place where you're invited only if you're important enough to be there. They're a place where the host invites you hoping to get something back, right? To get invited to your party in a couple weeks. It's a social ladder. The goal is to climb the ladder and to avoid shame. The goal is to show the community how cool you are. A wedding feast in this time in the Jewish tradition is one of the most important and structured meals that you can have. The problem with the way in which meals are done in this time period is that they really limit community. Meals aren't a place where deep love is shared to all people. They're a place where limits are set. It makes relationship transactional because you're only getting invited if you have something to offer and you're only throwing the party so you can show the world how great you are. You're encouraged to place yourself in a seat of honor to exalt yourself above others and you're encouraged to tell people when they've sat themselves in a seat above their pay grade. And Jesus really isn't into that. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Christ invites us to never exalt ourselves above those who sit around us, but to pick the lowest seat at the table to be humbled, to wait for God if God seeks to call us into a different seat, to never seat ourselves above others knowing or thinking that we're better than them, to not think we're worthy of a seat so close to God because we have the audacity to put ourselves there. It's God's table, not our table. In the scripture, Jesus undermines the structure that upholds social status and transactional relationships at meals, instructing the host of the meal to never invite your friends or family, to never invite your wealthy neighbors to your meals, since they're all able to pay you back with a corresponding invitation. And when we hear that, we may think, Jesus, what? You want me to have a big party and to not invite anyone I know? To not invite my friends or my family or that like weird aunt that I don't really like but I know she's going to give me a good gift. <laughs> this kind of social order is the backbone of the system of Jesus' society and in some ways it's still the backbone of our own society. Ensuring meals remain a place of social divide and reinforce our worth is important. Jesus, however, is in calling for inclusion of people who can't return the invitation. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those who don't get a seat at the table because they have nothing to offer. Jesus turns the idea that social payment and repayment should govern life and God's kingdom on its head. 
Instead, he tells us to invite those who have absolutely nothing to offer by earthly standards and everything to offer by godly standards. Jesus recognizes that this way of being in the world makes no sense, and that's why he does it. He offers us a different framework for what meals should be. He recognizing that, recognizes that asking someone who has nothing to contribute, who can't offer back an invitation, to most of us is a bad idea. More than that, it's a bad deal. What are you doing if you're just feeding people and you're not going to get anything back from it? There's a theological truth in what Jesus is telling us in the passage. There's an important reason to give up the old and the familiar way of being, the comfortable way of doing things. When God's people humble themselves and seek to live by a different social system, a system of radical inclusion, they can trust God to be faithful. When God's people decide to start inviting everyone to the table instead of just the ones who can invite you back, that's when we actually look like the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is one that eliminates social status and disregards the idea that there are haves and have-nots. Instead, in it, all people are worthy and invited to the table to feast at God's heavenly banquet. Rituals are good, friends. They make us feel at home. Meals with our family and friends are important. They make us feel loved. They offer support and community. They offer comfort. They give us ways to see God in those who are closest to us. And Christ invites his church, invites us to let go of clinging to the seat, to let go of things that leave others out. This is a truth that I am convinced my grandmother, my grandfather knew better than any other truth. Because my entire life, no matter how completely inconvenient it may have been to be, to me, no matter how much it may have angered me to be kicked out of my seat and forced to sit at a card table in a sewing room, my grandmother never turned anyway, anyone away from her table. No matter how much they may have been struggling financially to put food on the table, there was always room for another. My entire life, my grandparents were people who I knew I could invite friends to come to Thanksgiving and Christmas and meals if they didn't have a place to go. My grandmother would welcome them. She had presents for them. She'd feed them. And it didn't matter if you never came back. She'd always ask me, how's that friend? And I'd think, I bought them once five years ago. <laughs> like, they understand that sometimes you just need to make yourself uncomfortable to get out of your seat, to pull up more chairs, to invite people to come and eat with you. That our comfort and our own familiarity isn't as important as making sure someone knows they always have a table to sit at, a place where they will be welcomed and remembered and told, you look beautiful today, regardless of how you look. Christ invites us to trade our comfort and our familiarity for fellowship and friendship. This feast that Christ is talking about isn't just instructions for mealtime. This wedding banquet, this extraordinary celebration of a union, it's a metaphor for how we're to live every day. 
for what Christ's church should be. The church which is like Christ's bride. Christ calls us to be like the table in his parable. One which is a table of radical inclusion. One where seats are never arranged according to honor or what someone has to offer. A place where social status is dismissed. And regardless of whether or not you can give anything back, regardless of whether or not you have anything to throw in the offering plate, regardless of whether or not you have anything to offer in return, you are genuinely welcomed at a table. And that comes from nothing but true love. From nothing but trying to live into the beauty that is the kingdom of God. This is God's table. It's God's party. God made the guest list and it's pretty easy to read because God literally just invites everyone. My question this morning, friends, is what would it mean to live into this? Truthfully, I've never been at a church that does this quite as well as Open Table does. And that doesn't mean we can't do it better. Perhaps we too are people who find it easy to fall into our old patterns and rhythms. What does it mean to be a church that invites everyone and sincerely means it when we extend the invitation? To be a church where the invitation really has no strings attached. A church that never keeps track of what people have to offer or who is better or who is worse. We can be as good at it as we might be right now and we can still do better because we're human. And it's just easy to fall back into ranking people and wanting our seat and really not wanting to sit next to that other person. There's people that I do that with. I go to family meals and I want to be on the opposite side of the table from you. What does it mean to want to sit at a table? To be fine with whoever sits down next to you? To not worry about limiting the number of seats for fear of coming up short, but to just show up, welcoming everyone who's there, loving them and eating with them and trusting that there's going to be enough chairs. And if there's not, we're going to throw up some card tables and we're going to put you in a corner and we're going to laugh about it later with the trust that there's going to be enough food. Because with God, there's always an abundance. God is a God of abundance, and we, we're the ones who make things scarce. To trust that when we let go of the temptation to get stuck on small details, we get in the way of what God is calling us to. That God might show up, and it might not be with the way we're familiar, but it's going to be beautiful. To let go of our need for control and our earthly measures of worth. To just live boldly. To know that with God, the reward for living in this way is so much greater than the reward for living otherwise. The gift of welcoming all people to a table with no strings attached, I think means you're going invi to get invited to way more parties than you could get invited to if you were just inviting the people you know have something to give you back. The joy is deeper. The love is more real. 
I hope that you all have had the opportunity to experience a table where you know you are truly loved and welcomed and valued. That is something I grew up having. And it has made the deepest impact on me as an adult. Knowing that I could always walk into my grandparents' kitchen, that my grandmother would love me no matter what, that my grandfather would talk to me, even if it was just to ask me if what I did at school this week because he heard about it from my mom, that I might be pushed out of my seat, but it was only to make room for someone else who needed it more than I did. To know that with God, the reward is good. What does it mean to be a church that does this? I'm not sure. I don't know exactly what the reward looks like, but I know that it is good. That this is Open Table's goal, and my hope is that together we can just keep chasing it. Just keep pulling up chairs and inviting people in and asking ourselves, what do I actually expect? Where am I falling into traps and how can I let go of that? Sometimes we just need to be recentered and reminded that that's not the point. Thanks be to God. As I mentioned, this is World Communion Sunday. Churches across the world are gathering today to celebrate communion. And that doesn't perhaps feel as exciting when you're in a church that does communion literally every Sunday. There are churches that do it less often. Maybe you grew up in one of those traditions where you did it once a year or once a month or once a century. I don't know. I don't know what other people do. <laughs> But John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, says that you should do communion as often as you can because we need it. We need to be fed by Christ. We need to be sustained. We need to know that we are welcome at the table. That if there's no other table that's willing to welcome you right now, you've always got a seat at this one. And so this morning, friends, our communion liturgy is one which is special for World Communion Sunday. You can turn in your hymnals to page 13. My part will be different, but your responses will be the same, and I will make sure to give you hints as to where we are. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Blessed be your name throughout the earth, Lord God, for you have created wonders, and from the beginning you've drawn every living thing into community with you. In the bounty of your creation you fashioned land and sea, sun and stars, plants and animals, that we may know the constant nature of your love for us. In covenant life you drew a people to yourself to give and receive love in your name. In the fullness of time, you drew near to us, your son, to bind us in the promise of everlasting life. In every time and place, you offer us siblings with whom to live your ways of forgiveness of grace. In every age, you surround us with the great company of saints that we may be bound to the one 
in this world that you so love. And so with the company of earth and heaven, we praise your name, joining the unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. God of holy unity, you are perfect three and perfectly one. From many you make people one in you. Sanctify your church around the world and transform our fractures into fruitfulness. Send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and cup that they may be for us the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who at a supper with his disciples took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper he took the cup, again gave thanks to you, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Great is the mystery of faith, and so we proclaim it together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, the one who created all of us, you gather us now in one faith, one hope, and one baptism. Draw us near as we are your children. When our lives are overshadowed by what divides, where wars have not yet ceased, come quickly. Where hostility tears apart, brother and sister, open your path of peace. Where the relationship between your people and your creation falters, renew our awe in the wonders you have made. Where your church's diversity fails to reflect the glorious kaleidoscope of your kingdom, lead us to greater love and wider mercy than we have ever before imagined. Hasten the day when we who share Christ's body will join him in perfect and holy communion in the everlasting embrace of the Holy Spirit as you draw all things to yourself now and forever. Amen. The table is set, friends.